Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hey, this is DeRay. I'm going to pod to the people. In this episode, it's me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. And then we're joined by Vanita Gupta, the president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, who used to lead the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice under the Obama administration. In our interview today, we talk about mail-in voting, why it's important. We talk about some lessons learned from Wisconsin. You know, the thing on my heart this week is about friendship that I am lucky to have some people that I'm really close to. But the other thing is I realize that around issues of health, around some private issues and relationships, we hold so much in. And I found so much security, so much freedom. I found the power of vulnerability in being really honest with my friends about what's going on in my world. And because I've had so much time in the house uh, recently, it's been really powerful to connect with people and be like, well, this actually just happened. And I don't need to tell 10 friends this happened or I don't need to, you know, post something on the internet about it. But just like reconnecting with people and sort of going through some of the things that are big and small with my friends has actually been really powerful and has made our relationships much deeper. So not only checking on your friends, check in is like, hey, what's up? But like reconnect with them, like catch up with the people you haven't talked to in a long time, like tell those stories, learn those lessons, live that life. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Yeti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam's Way on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Dr. Clint Smith III. I, I, I. Hey. The doctor. Doctor in the house. And this is Dre at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. Well, um, it's another week of quarantine in this here 2020 coronavirus life. Clint, we know that you are not a medical doctor, but I think you would advise all of us not to drink or cook bleach or disinfectant. Is that correct? Well, with my doctor expertise, I am able to say with conviction that you should not ingest bleach or Lysol or 409 or any adjacent 99.9 kill the bacteria type situation. Anything you spray on your counter, don't eat it. UV rays, you know, I think they have those UV ray lights. Don't eat those. <laughs> Do not ingest that. It's a wild time, man. It's, it is a wild, a wild time. time. I think everybody, hopefully, who listens to this podcast knows not to ingest disinfectants um, and that UV light is not, in fact, the thing that will kill it. But what are you all cooking if it's not bleach? <laughs> I will say the wildest thing about remembering not to eat bleach is that Trump, every week you're like, wow, that was bad. But then you're like, I didn't even know you could shock me. Like, I, whoever thought that you'd be like, that Lysol has to release a statement being like, please do not ingest our products because the president suggested that as like a viable option. It is really, I'm like, I'm nervous about what the new floor is going to be because I thought that we had actually already seen the floor and he was just wallowing on it. But now it's like. Apparently we had not hit the floor. I talked about not drinking bleach today on MSNBC, which is not something I ever thought I'd have to do when I signed my contract. I was like, this is beneath all of us. And yet, given that numbers and calls to poison control in several states has increased because people have attempted said action, we're not boiling bleach, we're not drinking bleach, we're not cooking bleach or any type of disinfectant. But what are you doing? What are you cooking? What is on your quarantine menu? So something I'm missing a lot is our pizza spot. And our pizza spot is uh, down the road and... They have takeout and and it's fine. It's cool. But like, it's not the same as like, you know, every Friday we would like go into the spot, open the door and the waft of like pepperoni pizza just like, you know, curls up under my nose. The wings, they're, you know, barbecue, honey mustard, teriyaki, lemon pepper, just like coalescing together in this amazing <laughs> swirl of like it was just it's the i look forward to it every friday night i put the kids down i go to the spot and i'm like ooh, i just and i just it just swept over me you should write a pizza poem i should write a it pizza poem like that's, that's what i'm 
I'm, I'm in my feelings it's right now. It's a love affair. <laughs> yeah, ode to pizza and lemon pepper so wings. So I say all that to say, I say all that to say, we have uh, really stepped up our lemon pepper wing game here at uh, in our household. And so, you know, we either put it, sometimes we put the wings in the oven, sometimes we throw it in the air fryer. I feel a little bit better about myself because I'm like, oh, these are like healthier lemon pepper wings. We got the homemade lemon pepper. You know, we're crushing it with like a, a mortar and pestle. I'm smashing the lemon pepper and sprinkling it on like salt bay. And it's uh, it's been delicious. So shout out to healthy lemon pepper wings. That's been a, a big go-to for us. The thing that I am most proud of during this quarantine cook fest that I have been having, because I like never get to cook a lot, even though I really like it. So now I've been able to rediscover some of that. I made my first pot of collard greens, and they were damn good, if I do say so myself. Were they good? Listen, you all know DeRay doesn't have any leg to stand on here because DeRay can cook cereal. DeRay can't even boil water or an egg. Let's calm down. But I can eat. I'm aware. I am aware. I am aware. We have lived together before. I am am aware. This is getting heated. This is getting heated. (laughs) Okay. Shady boots. To answer your question, DeRay, they were very good. My husband would have told me if they weren't. Anyway, my collard greens are very good. I I did apple cider vinegar, some bacon, and... Um, I'm, I really let, let it marinate. The thing about it is you can cook greens quickly, but you shouldn't cook greens quickly because the more they marinate and the more the flavors just kind of marry each other, the more layered the flavor is. Oh my gosh. They were so good. I see you talking about layered flavors. Look at you. You know, I can burn a little bit. I can, I can cook a little bit. I don't know if the best greens I ever had were layered, but we going, but I can't wait to test yours. So. Sir, okay, well, next time you cook anything, call me. Got it. (laughs) So, yeah, we talked a little bit about Lysol and the fact that you should definitely not ingest it. Well, it turns out that is just the latest front in a broad swath of misinformation that has been communicated everywhere from the White House to Fox News. And what's interesting now is now researchers are starting to be able to quantify the impact that misinformation is having on people's likelihood of defying social distancing rules and potentially exposing themselves to coronavirus. So a recent study that was just published a few weeks ago by researchers Leonardo Bersinson, Akash Rao, Christopher Roth, and David yanagizawa Drop from a range of different universities, University of Chicago, Harvard University, University of Warwick, and University of Zurich, um, they sought to answer the question of how does misinformation affect people's behavior with regard to coronavirus. Uh, So they looked at watchers of Fox News, in particular two shows on Fox News, which are both trash, but apparently one is slightly more trash than the other, Tucker Carlson Tonight and Hannity. So the backstory here is that Tucker Carlson was saying that coronavirus was an actual thing, slightly earlier than Hannity was. Of course, both of them were late to it. Fox News in general has been doing a terrible job in communicating the science around this, what people should do. Um, But there were slight differences in the timing of when Tucker versus Hannity began telling their viewers that coronavirus was an actual thing that people should stay at home and uh, not expose themselves to. And so the researchers surveyed people who were watchers of Fox News uh, to see to what extent does the information that people receive from these two different shows impact their behavior with regard to their likelihood to sort of ignore social distancing guidelines and continue to go outside and potentially expose themselves to the virus. What they found was not surprising, but nevertheless was kind of pretty shocking to see actually articulated in the data here. Uh, What they found was that viewers of Hannity Again, Hannity was later to actually saying that this was a thing. Uh, Viewers of Hannity were more likely to continue going outside uh, through the month of February than viewers of Tucker Carlson. Also, they found that viewers of of Hannity uh, were more likely to both contract the virus and to die from the virus than viewers of Carlson. The research design here is fascinating. They looked at the amount of time that people spent watching each show. They surveyed people's behavior and attitudes towards coronavirus. And then finally, uh, they looked at the county level coronavirus case numbers and death numbers and matched that up against the exposure to each of these shows. So this is the latest and sort of one of the most solid cases for the theory that exposure to misinformation can actually cause people to die. 
it is something that we should definitely uh, consider in thinking about like what should be the consequences or accountability for people with huge platforms, uh, not least of which the president of the United States, that continue to spread misinformation that, as we talked about earlier, can actually result in people uh, harming themselves and others. What I think is scariest about this is just how much of this misinformation is being supported by the president and the briefings that are happening at the White House. And the fact of the matter is, usually, there is someone who has authority in across the entire country who can stand and refute these kind of mistruths. Instead, we have someone who is feeding these very mistruths to the host that you're talking about, to the people directly through the live feed of these press conferences, and is demanding that the people who stand with him are also there to parrot his falsehoods and pledge themselves to being loyal to him. It is incredibly scary. Uh, And I know that we can joke around in our own echo chambers about what watching Fox News all day long will do to you, but we should have enough respect for humanity to demand that even the people that we don't agree with on substantive issues still tell people truth and don't tell them lies that can get them killed. So I've recommended this series before. Uh, It's called The Loudest Voice. It's based off of a book called The Loudest Voice in the Room, which is essentially this examination of Fox News and how it came to be. It stars Russell Crowe as Roger Ailes, and it is completely, I think it's very, very fascinating. Uh, And it kind of slipped under the radar. But if you have the chance to watch it, I think it is really helpful. Obviously, you know, there's some fictionalized elements. It's a drama. It's a miniseries. But it is helpful in grounding you in an understanding of like how Fox News came to be and really how it just fundamentally changed the dynamics of American political life and led to the rise of Trump and sort of large campaign of disinformation. And secondly, I'm looking at some research from the Pew Foundation, which is really fascinating. And it's, you know, this is kind of a thing that anecdotally, I feel like we all know, but it's fascinating to see the statistics. It's talking about different perceptions that people who watch different cable news channels have to how Trump has handled the coronavirus. And it said in a March 2020 survey, 63% of those whose main source of political and election news is Fox News said that Trump is doing an excellent job responding to the outbreak. No more than 25% of those who cited other news outlets as their main source of political news, so CNN and MSNBC, etc., none of them said that. So no more than a quarter said that he was doing an excellent job if you watched something other than Fox. And Fox News regulars were considerably more likely than even general Republicans overall to describe Trump's handling of the outbreak as excellent. Fox News skews old. We know it skews white. We know it skews conservative. But like, there's like one historical phenomenon that I think about a lot, and then one more to modern history. One is like, what would have happened if Abraham Lincoln had never been killed? I think about that a lot. And just like, man, what would Reconstruction have looked like? And then I also think about like, what would our current political landscape look like if Roger Ailes had not created Fox News? And it's an impossible counterfactual because it's been with us for so long now. But man, this thing has messed us up. Two things. One is just a reminder that uh, not only should you not drink bleach, but hydrochloroquine, which uh, Trump was parroting as some cure-all for a coronavirus, turned out not to be such. Big shocker. So Trump just dismissed Rick Bright, who was the director of the Department of Health and Human Services Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. So he just got dismissed and he's going to sue. And then he was also removed as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. And he was given a much narrow job at the National Institutes of Health. He was one of the people inside the government saying like hydrochloroquine ain't working, y'all. It's not working. The other thing, and this is something that I think didn't really make the national news, is that on Sunday, Trump lashed out at Fox News. And what he tweeted was, Fox News just doesn't get what's happening. They're being fed Democrat talking points, and they play them without hesitation or research. So while, Sam, your news is saying, like, okay, Fox is off the deep end, Trump actually thinks it's not deep enough. And it is interesting to see, like, what will it take for people to tell the truth? Like, what will? how many people have to die? Will it be Fox people? Will it be more Black people for people to be like, Trump is actually just dangerous? Like, this is not a partisan issue. It's not just going to be blue states or red states. But I hadn't ever seen him criticize the station before. And, you know, I will say he obviously calls out a Black woman because he only picks on Black people. So he specifically calls out Donna Brazil and says that, you know, she's bad, but other people are even worse. And then he calls out Chris Wallace. But it's one of those things where it's like, 
we got to pay attention because even though Fox is moving to the right, Trump feels like they're not on the right enough. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. So my news comes in light of the decisions that various leaders around this country are making about what they call reopening the economy. The lesson is coming from Hokkaido, Japan, which is an island on the northern part of the country. They started to experience their first wave of COVID-19 infections right around the beginning of February this year, following a large festival on January the 31st that saw a lot of visitors and travelers from international spaces. After the first wave of infections became really serious, they instituted a three-week lockdown. After that three-week lockdown, as they saw numbers declining, they decided to end the lockdown and reopen business. But what happened, unfortunately, is pretty predictable. After they reopened business, they experienced a second wave of infections of COVID-19 that was even worse than the first wave. It hit the island even harder and made life even more difficult. I bring this up because, unfortunately, countries all around the world have been learning the lessons of this pandemic even earlier than we have been. And now is the time that we need those in charge to heed those lessons. 
We know, of course, that the solutions that are necessary in a pandemic like this can often play with people's common sense. Because what can happen is that you can develop a false sense of security based on the effectiveness of the solutions used. So all of the things that we are supposed to be doing right now, quarantining to the very best of our ability, social distancing and staying at least six feet away from people, wearing a mask, staying home and reaching out to get tested if you're sick, all of those things as they begin to work will begin to flatten the curve. And it can lead you to think that you actually don't need those solutions because there's nothing really wrong. That false sense of security can be incredibly seductive, but obviously, as we learn from Japan, incredibly dangerous as well. We also know that that's true from the 1918 influenza pandemic, that history can teach us the lesson that cities like San Francisco had to learn when they shut down lockdowns early. Unfortunately, I don't believe that this particular administration is going to spend a lot of time learning from our neighbors overseas, especially those who belong to the Asian and Pacific Islander community. The widespread discrimination that people in that community, both here and abroad, are facing because of this pandemic is absolutely reflected in this administration. And I don't see them making the calls that they should be to learn the lesson anytime soon to all of our peril. People like Governor Parsons from my home state of Missouri has said that he's going to be reopening businesses and reopening the economy across the state in a couple of weeks. And of course, Brian Kemp, in my opinion, the unduly elected governor of Georgia, just this past week reopened a number of businesses across the state. Even the mayors in Georgia have disagreed with this call. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who is, of course, the mayor of the city of Atlanta, has tweeted out and gotten the word out to the best of her ability to her constituents to stay home despite the orders that are coming down from Governor Kemp. In fact, on April the 25th at noon, she publicly tweeted out the statewide numbers of infections and deaths. On April 25th at 12 p.m., Georgia had 22,695 cases of COVID-19 and 904 deaths. And these are just the ones that have been tested, tagged, and treated as COVID-19, not counting all of the other ones for folks who have not been able to access this testing. Moreover, Governor Kemp made this decision not because he believes it's safe to go back outside, but because he believes that Georgia's hospital system is equipped to handle the second wave that he thinks will probably come as a result of this. Look, we are being sold a false choice here. We are being told that it's either opening up the economy or keeping our people healthy. But Mayor Cantrell in New Orleans, another hot spot in our country, put it very plainly and very simply. There is no economy without public health. This is a false choice that we absolutely have to reject, just like we reject the one that tells us it's either democracy and the vote or our health. The powers that be should be doing everything that they can to make it safe for people to go back to work, not just shoving people out there so that they can risk their lives so that they can reduce the amount of unemployment that they pay at the state level. We have to be the ones who reject the false binary of the economy or public health and recognize that they have to go hand in hand. So no matter what your governor or your mayor or whomever is in charge is telling you, if it goes against your ability to stay healthy and keep your family healthy, don't do it. We're going to have to save ourselves. I find myself thinking a lot about the analogy that was used by Ruth Bader Ginsburg during her dissent in the Shelby County v. Holder case about the Voting Rights Act and Section 5, which was gutted. And as we know, has, you know, it took away preclearance from the federal government and the Department of Justice. And now states that represent the former Confederacy, which had these terrible laws, can create voted disenfranchisement, which is gutted the voter rolls across the South. We've talked about this. And something she said at the end of that dissent was she wrote that throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. And coronavirus and uh, Shelby County v. Holder are not the same thing, but the analogy, I think, holds in the sense that you don't stop doing something because you're no longer being impacted by the thing that the action itself was attempting to prevent. It feels like right now we're all standing under an umbrella and people like Kemp are like, well, we're not getting wet anymore, so we don't need the umbrella. And it sort of just defies logic. And I want to be clear. I think that people of good faith can have different conceptions and can have questions about what sort of restrictions should be in place and what sort of restrictions are necessary and which sort of restrictions aren't necessary 
as we move forward with this, obviously, because we're going to be living with this for a long time. And, you know, there's obviously certain reasons that the outbreak existed in the way that it did and does in New York City that make it different than a place like a rural county in Georgia. But the way that we go about asking those questions and the way that we go about attempting to figure out what things work and don't work requires a certain level of humility, requires continuing to abide by what public health experts say, right? Waiting at least those 14 days until the number of cases go down. These hospitals still don't have the PPE they need. They still don't have the capacity they need. They still don't have, you know, I'm, I'm reading things right now about nurses who are getting their pay cut by like 20% in hospitals across the country because the hospitals are not doing the elective surgeries and the elective surgeries are what pay for the hospital to continue running. So we're in this moment where the people who are asking to be on the front lines of this fight are having their pay cut by a fifth if or a quarter. And so I just, I think that Japan and all of these places are a lesson for us to like, we have to be incredibly careful. And there is no such thing as like, all right, we're going to pull the economy back if people don't feel safe to go outside. Um, and all that's happening now is that Kemp is putting these businesses in a position where uh, their employees can't file for unemployment because the businesses are back open. And so you're essentially putting the cost on the individual businesses who will now struggle and go bankrupt. I hope not, but but it, it is likely that they are clearly not going to have the same level of business that they did before. And essentially, you're taking it off of the government's hand and putting it onto the individual business's hand. And it's concerning. It's concerning all around. So this is obviously close to me because I, I do have COVID-19 and hopefully uh, by the next time we record, I will have been tested again and will test negative and do the antibody tests and all that stuff. But one of the things that I'm mindful of is that this is still a virus that we are st we're starting to understand. There's so many things about it that we don't even understand yet. So there's a report that just came out that talks about how young people are actually experiencing strokes as a result of coronavirus, that they are experiencing strokes uh, even when some of them are asymptomatic. So like this is something that people hadn't sort of imagined. It's in the Washington Post. The title of the article is Young and Middle-Aged People Barely Sick with COVID-19 Are Dying of Strokes. The other thing that's happening is that there's actually an interesting decrease in 911 calls in some places around things like strokes. And it's stressing the doctors out because they are convinced that like strokes aren't decreasing across the country. People just aren't calling 911 for actual emergencies anymore. So when we think about the impact of COVID, it is not only the people who have COVID-19, but you think about the landscape of people who aren't going to the doctors at all, who like their underlying conditions or pre-existing conditions are actually being exacerbated in this moment where when hospitals only have the capacity to do the most immediate COVID-related things. So I think about, I know people who we're going to have cataract surgery. I can think of people who I know some dentists who were going to do root canals and stuff like that. And it's like you let that stuff wait too long and you are just like prolonging something that's going to be really bad. The other thing I wanted to say is that so my stepbrother, so I posted that I had COVID. I have COVID. Really, my only symptom has been loss of taste and smell. And since then, I've had a host of people reach out to me and they're like, hey, DeRay, I also can't smell and can't taste. And I'm like, go get tested. They're like, oh, but it's just, I don't know. I'm like, go get tested. So my stepbrother gets tested. He comes back positive for COVID yesterday. And he got tested in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins, nose swab, drive up. Now, what I was saying to them, he hasn't seen a doctor. He's going to see a doctor virtually. Like Hopkins has this virtual setup, but he has asthma. So I'm like, well, how are they going to test your lungs virtually? What'd that look like? Like, how are they going to test the oxygen flow of your body virtually, right? Like, how do we make sure that people, when they test positive and have pre-existing conditions, actually, like, he needs somebody with a stethoscope to, like, listen to his lungs before it gets bad because it doesn't feel bad right now. So I think about all the other things that are going to come from this moment, and we are still relatively early in the life cycle of COVID. So last week, the Department of Education significantly increased, in fact, it more than doubled the number of colleges and universities participating in the Second Chance Pell pilot program, which, as I talked about last week with DeRay, is this Obama-era initiative that helps people in prison earn associate's or bachelor's degrees while they're incarcerated. This past Friday, the department said that 67 new schools had been invited to join the program, which brings the total number to 130 colleges and universities in 42 states and the District of Columbia. As you all know, the education of people in prison is something that was the focus of my dissertation. Talked about it on the interview last week with DeRay. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen, please do. 
And the pilot program was created in the Obama administration in 2015, and it essentially allows for incarcerated people to use federal Pell Grants to pursue an education despite a larger sort of congressional ban on providing financial aid to incarcerated people. Uh, Schools that accept the invitation will work with the federal and state penitentiaries to enroll incarcerated folks who qualify for Pell, uh, which is, as many people know, a form of aid that covers tuition, books, fees for college students uh, who need them. One caveat about the program is that people must be eligible for release within five years of enrolling in coursework. And if you listen to the conversation I had last week with DeRay, you know that this is something that I do not at all agree with because it's premised on this false notion that people who have long sentences or even life sentences either won't benefit from these programs or that they simply aren't worth the investment, despite research, including my own and that of others, showing that when prisons have more robust educational opportunities, they are safer for people who have access to those programs and people in the prison more broadly, right? Like more educational opportunities provided to incarcerated people, the safer that prison is for everyone there. As a reminder, Congress banned incarcerated people from accessing Pell Grants in 1994, arguing that it was unfair for them to receive a cut of what were already limited financial aid dollars. But as I said last week, there is no person who ever failed to receive a grant because an incarcerated person did. Incarcerated people are less than 1% of all Pell Grants when they were given to them in the 90s and before. But the reality is that without these grant dollars, many facilities just fundamentally scale back their educational offerings and very few incarcerated people could afford to pursue higher education unless they were getting money and resources from a family member who was sending it from the outside. A recent study by the Vera Institute found that more than 4,000 certificates, uh, associate's degrees, and bachelor's degrees have been awarded to incarcerated folks participating in the Pell Pilot Initiative over the last three years. And one last thing, and I didn't get a chance to talk about this in my interview last week, there is a tension that exists for those of us who are committed to an abolitionist framework in the context of prison education, which is that while it is hugely, hugely important for educational opportunities to be offered, I obviously believe that. I teach in prisons and jails, uh, and it is deeply important to me because I know how transformative it can be. We also have to be careful of the ways that certain reforms the expansion of certain types of programming, whether it be medical program, mental health program, behavioral programs, educational programs. We have to be wary of the way that certain people, specifically be wary of the way that folks in this administration and those adjacent to them might use the reforms or expansion of like educational opportunities to either explicitly or implicitly provide legitimacy to the sort of larger carceral state. Providing more and more education to people in prison is a good thing. It is not a good thing if you provide education to people and then use that to justify keeping people in prison. It's an important thing to name and it's a tension that exists. I want every single person who has uh, who qualifies for a Pell Grant to have access to that Pell Grant so that they can pursue higher education. I also want there to be far, far, far fewer people in prison in the first place. And in my mind, those things aren't mutually exclusive. So my news was something that I didn't know about. It is about, uh, so obviously we are living in a time of COVID and there was a smallpox outbreak in Boston in the 1720s. And there was a prominent Puritan minister, Cotton Mather, who was a big deal in colonial history. And what I didn't know is that when this smallpox outbreak happened, Amather was one of the people who promoted inoculation, and he has writings that survived, which is how we know he promoted it. And in his promotion of inoculation, he cites one of the people that he had enslaved. One Simmons is the enslaved person's name. He cited One Simmons as the person who helped him understand that inoculation was actually something that could prevent smallpox from killing people. And the procedure of inoculation spread partly because one Simis actually helped Cotton Mather understand that before he was enslaved, people had done this practice and that it saved them. And it just reminded me how, you know, when you trace the history of so much in this country, it goes back to the wisdom and knowledge of Black people, that that is like the root of it. It's where it came from. People sacrifice themselves to help the larger good. And of course, in true American fashion, what happens to one Simmons? He doesn't want to be converted to Christianity and Cotton Mather dismisses him and sells him and writes all these negative things about him that we have in the historical ledger. So he throws him away, essentially, 
But when Simis is responsible for people understanding inoculation as like a tool to fight smallpox that saved countless people's lives. And this is a bit of history. This is something that normally a Clint would bring to the podcast, a little history lesson. But I got it before Clint this time, so I thought I'd bring it here. This is one of the many reminders that I constantly have where I am focused less and less these days on making other people recognize and honor what Black folks have done for them and just making sure that we do it ourselves, um, that we honor one another, that we cheer each other on, that we give our own awards, that we build our own societies, that we share our own gratitude and celebration for one another. Because if this world, not just this country, but if this world was ever going to actually acknowledge Blackness for all it has done and for the foundational tool that it is for everything from the economy to culture to religion and music, it would have done it by now. So some days I'm thinking about how we get seats at the table, but a lot more days, especially now, I'm thinking about how we build our own. And that's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD, streaming audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring. Full throttle is half the fun. Where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And now my conversation with Vanita Gupta, the CEO and president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Now, here's the thing. Since we recorded the episode, New York has canceled the Democratic primary, but is still holding local and statewide elections on the same day, which is absolutely the sort of thing we need mail-in ballots for. I talk about mail-in ballots with Vanita in the interview, but we recorded before New York decided to cancel the presidential primary. Here we go. Vanita Gupta, thanks so much for joining us again on Pod Save the People. So glad to be here. Thank you, Joy. You're one of the early guests. We had you on like way back when I first started the pod. You know, we met because you used to lead the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice under Obama. You know, the last time we talked, we talked so long ago, and this was at the beginning of the Trump administration and the beginning of everything. And now we've just seen so much happen. How do you even sort of explain or think about how the world has changed since you were in leadership at the DOJ? I mean, I think that we were victims of our lack of imagination about how bad things could get. In my wildest dreams, I could have never imagined that we would have a president and an administration that was so anti-civil rights that was at every turn undermining fundamental democratic norms and principles. And I remember being uh, on your show on this podcast early in, it was in 2017. It was the first half of 2017, I think. And bad things were already happening that were defying the imagination. But on a weekly basis, even these many years in, I continue to be astonished about the fact that there really isn't a bottom. 
And so, you know, I think COVID and the president's um, mismanagement of it that has put so many people at risk um, and resulted literally in people dying is, I think, highlighting uh, what it means to have really bad leadership in this country. But it's, um, it's been quite a few years. How has quarantine been? You're a mom and how has life been in quarantine given that you have, you know, you're like a homeschool coordinator and a civil rights leader? So um, calling me a homeschool coordinator is totally overstating anything that I'm doing for my children. Um, It is, I talk about it sometimes as TV and film studies. Uh, They're becoming (laughs) ardent critics of screen time. But look, it's crazy. This whole time is surreal. Uh, I'm talking to you who been diagnosed with COVID and who's doing a podcast, uh, which is kind of incredible. Uh, And I'm so glad that you're feeling as good as you are. But I'm running an organization. I have two kids uh, at home um, who aren't going to school anymore, but I am among the luckiest of them all. I have a house. I have a job. I am working really hard with my team and with the broad civil rights community to do everything we can right now to protect vulnerable communities of frontline responders to healthcare workers, to people that are detained in our nation's prisons and jails that are getting forgotten and exposed to very, very dangerous conditions. We're working to protect the elections. And uh, everyone saw what happened in Wisconsin a couple weeks ago where voters had to choose between their safety and their right to vote. It was horrific. And so now we are kind of doubling and tripling down to try to get Congress to give money to states to get prepared for November to hold a general election. The date is not going to move. And so we're hard at work right now. And I consider myself among them the most fortunate, even if, you know, there are daily struggles at trying to figure all of this out. There's no question that many, many more people are faced with much more dire challenges at this time. There is this consensus that the election is not going to move. How do we prepare for that adequately, given the fact that like going outside in groups doesn't really seem to make sense? A lot of people have never voted by mail before. I'll say I just got my ballot in uh, in Baltimore to vote in the congressional seventh. And I think the directions were printed before the ballot. So the directions said I needed two stamps. The actual thing said no postage required. Like, I was confused for a second, being like, did I read something wrong? Like, how do we actually prepare for this in a way that makes sense? Yeah, so, you know, um, as soon as Louisiana, Louisiana was the first state to postpone its primary, and then about a dozen or so states followed suit because they deemed that they couldn't hold primary elections in these conditions. It became clear that states needed to put in place options and actually needed to be prepared to run either postponed primaries or certainly the general election in November. Uh, Just for clarification, because I do think there's been a lot of anxiety about this, only Congress can change the date of the general election, uh, and it would require both houses of Congress agreeing to that, the president signing it, and then it being upheld by the Supreme Court. And in this case, given the makeup of the House of Representatives, let's just say it seems fairly certain that that date is not ever moving. And I um, I feel like it's important to say that because people have been very afraid that the president could unilaterally move the date of the general election in November. That That cannot happen. The law and the Constitution are clear on that. But states need to get ready. So there was an initial kind of clamor for vote by mail as the solution. And vote by mail is really critically important. There is no question that states need to be able to put in place ways for people to vote from the comfort and safety of their own home. The issue is that vote by mail alone is not sufficient. Um, Voting by mail, as you said, a lot of folks in communities, particularly communities of color, people with disabilities who may not be able to actually access or fill out the ballots without assistance and the like from home. Voters of color, um, older African-American voters have, there's been kind of a cultural distrust in some, uh, among some about the U.S. Postal Service and mail-in ballots because of terrible things that have happened in the past that have um, resulted in a lot of mistrust of the U.S. postal system and of this particular form of voting. There's also the cultural expression in many communities of going to the polls and going to the polls. And if you don't know what's happening, there's there are people there to direct you and tell you go to this machine and you fill it out and really to help you. Um, they, folks that are not native English speakers who need language assistance, 
they can't get that with vote by mail. Some Native American communities don't have U.S. postal addresses. So we have to be careful and understand that vote by mail, if it's kind of the exclusive option, could actually result in the disenfranchisement of communities that have already historically faced significant barriers at the polls. So what we are saying is states need to have vote by mail as an option. Those, When they put that in place, they need to make sure that they are sending out ballots with prepaid postage stamps so we're not kind of inadvertently creating a poll tax for people. We need to correct for long-standing problems with signature mismatching that has resulted in voters of color getting kicked off of the rolls at higher percentages, absentee ballots getting rejected. There are studies that have shown that voters of color tend to have absentee ballots rejected at a higher rate than white voters. So we need, there are corrective measures to be putting in place in how states set up their vote-by-mail systems. And every state runs their election differently. But on top of vote-by-mail, we need expanded early voting so that you can have at least 20 days of early voting at polling places that allow for social distancing. You need um, uh, CDC-compliant polling places that will cut down on any lines and make sure that there's an ability to kind of um, space out folks that are relying on in-person voting. You also need um, expanded online voter registration. A lot of government agencies where people typically go to register are closed right now. And so states need to have um, secure and available online voter regs. So we're, we are pushing this notion of options and Congress right now needs to give states the money to do this. This is not cheap. It's really hard to kind of totally upend the way that people vote in some places States have like four to five percent of their voters actually vote by mail. So the cultural kind of significance of trying to do this massive shift in seven months is really important. And to your point in your story, we need a massive voter education effort in every state because otherwise people won't even know how to vote come November. And that's not insignificant. Um, It's going to require state and local election officials to get that message out. It's going to require organizations like the Leadership Conference and others and state organizations to really educate voters about all of the rules changes. So we're kind of doing all of this right now. We're pushing Congress to put in $4 billion in the next stimulus package for um, states to get ready. We're pushing in all 50 states to make sure that the options they're creating and moving to are going to be robust, secure, accessible, and fair for everyone. And we're needing to then, uh, once the rules get set, to do massive voter education. So one of the things that we all saw was the election that happened in Wisconsin, where people had to stand in long lines. We now know that there were people who essentially caught COVID while they were standing in those lines. Can you talk about why that moment mattered in the national landscape? Like it was all over the news. Everybody was talking about this Wisconsin election. Why was that even a thing? Well, I think everyone saw images the day of, of people literally wearing garbage bags and masks and standing in these awful long lines at a time when COVID was raging in the state's It was particularly bad, surprise, surprise, in places like Milwaukee, higher density areas, uh, also areas that have higher black populations and and voters of color, and where already the racial disparities around COVID prevalence and mortality has been so pitched for the black communities in urban cities. And so this was seeing these long lines of people basically risking their very lives in order to vote was awful. It really, I think it was a travesty because the process leading up to it had been so blatantly partisan that it really, I think for folks that have been following or in the weeds on kind of tracking why Wisconsin was moving forward with a primary at a time when other states had postponed them, it really belied just the degree to which partisan politics uh, was overriding officials' concerns for people's health and safety in that moment, and that was, it was awful. So, you know, a little bit more into that, Wisconsin is a very gerrymandered state, gerrymandered over the last decade, and there have been a lot of efforts to rig the state and federal courts around the country, and Wisconsin was home to that. There was, outside of it being a Democratic primary, what a lot of people miss is actually there was a state Supreme Court race uh, at stake that day. And it was a fairly 
polarized election, um, and there was a lot of thought that the Republican Party in Wisconsin was really pushing for that election to take place because they wanted to install a more conservative judge on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court is about to consider and rule on voter purging in the state, and that that was really the reason why they were insisting on going forward, and that the governor made a late appeal to try to postpone it. It got through the courts, and ultimately, the night before the election was to take place, the United States Supreme Court issued a decision that left a very bad taste in people's mouths because it felt like an incredibly disingenuous and political decision as well. So there were a number of factors coming into play here for why people thought that the Wisconsin election was really a travesty. And then seeing those images, they were on the news, they were on Twitter, they were on social. At a time when we were all being told to stay at home, social distancing and the like, to see those lines all over the state of people basically risking their lives. And a lot of folks didn't even have their absentee ballots that morning. So they were, you know, they didn't have the option. They were saying, like, we can't even vote absentee because we didn't receive the ballots in time. So that's why it was such a kick in the gut. And the only silver lining to Ray through all of this is that we had been kind of kicking and screaming to Congress to allocate enough money for the states to get ready so that we would never have that kind of scene that we saw in Wisconsin. Well, Wisconsin happened, and it kind of clarified things for decision makers about why it was so important now to get the money in place to get to allow states to be prepared. So that's the silver lining is we need to be able to have a functioning democracy and protect people's public health and safety. This is 2020 in the United States of America. We, we can do both. There's a way to have these options put in place. But we have been faced with such a partisan and rancorous fight in the area of voting rights for too long, such that there's been real contention around whether voting should be made more accessible. And in some instances, we've had Republican officials literally, including the president more recently, literally talking about how increased access to voting is going to hurt the Republican Party. And I think we all have to take a step back and really kind of absorb what that means um, and why some candidates are relying on voter suppression as an electoral tactic rather than the policies kind of popularity of the policies that they are, that they imbue. And so that's why I think Wisconsin was like a little bit of a watershed moment for voting and for democracy, but it certainly clarified, I think, for a lot of folks why it's so important to get ready for November. Trump is still talking about voter ID as the way to move forward, that even with mail-in voting, fraud happens. What can we do to make sure that he doesn't put in place like some voter ID plan across the country? Or is that is that just him talking and it really isn't his power to be able to do? He can't put a voter ID plan kind of across the country. Congress can. Um, Congress can do certain things to hurt or help elections. Uh, I will say again, it's a good thing we have checks and balances post-2018. The first order of business for the new House of Representatives in 2019 was H.R. 1, which is a transformative democracy reform bill that opens up access to the vote and really kind of unrigs our democracy from corruption and from the nefarious efforts to restrict the right to vote and tries to address longstanding barriers for communities of color to, to voting and, and people with disabilities and the like. Congress is not going to do that. What I think we're seeing, though, the rhetoric from the White House is not helpful. But that said, there are actually Republican and Democratic secretaries of states around the country that are taking action to create options, even while there's this noise out of Washington. So you have states, not, not all of these solutions are perfect, but you have secretaries of states in Iowa and Oregon and um, in other places that are making significant changes to uh, voting preparedness and trying to give state voters more options. And so that's really important. And we've got to keep pushing on this in all 50 states. That's the tricky part. This isn't because there isn't going to be a federally mandated solution in all likelihood. Congress could do it. Congress could say, 
we, we're going to mandate these various options. It's hard to see Congress doing that in this moment. And I think if anything, we need to get the money so states can do it. But, but states are beginning to take action and we're going to keep the pressure on for all secretaries of states to be able to put these options in place so that we can have a smooth election come November. And what other issues should we be thinking about? I know there's been a lot of conversation about prisons and jails. Have we seen that work go well with people being released because of COVID-19? Look, I think that we are not seeing things go well in a lot of parts of the country for people in our nation's prisons, jails, immigration detention centers. And Congress here in Washington has a role to play with the Bureau of Prisons at the federal level, but states are you know, run their own systems. We have seen positive things happen with governors mandating um, the release of people on compassionate release, older older people in prison, people who have medical conditions, people who are in, frankly, for tickets and citations. All of this begs the question about why the hell they were in there to begin with, and this is part of longstanding work that many of us, including you, have been doing to transform our justice system uh, because there are, you know, I think the inequities that we're seeing right now and the harms are only kind of the tip of the spear of the kind of issues, longstanding issues around mass incarceration that we have been challenging for many years. But so it's good that some states are taking this action. But, you know, just the other day, Marion Correctional Facility in Ohio, 73% of the people in that facility now have COVID. It's astonishing. These are closed environments. Staff are often don't have the equipment um, and PPE and, and everything else that they need, but there's also just too many people in our nation's prisons and jails, and a lot of these folks could be safely quarantined and then um, released. So there's been a lot of activity on this, and we're going to have to keep it up. I will also say that and this goes to the elections part. There's the census that's happening right now, which is also pretty challenged because the census relies on door knocking to get the hardest to count communities to be counted. And that can't happen right now. But the census, you can fill it out digitally and online from the safety of your home. You can fill it out by phone. You can fill it out by mail. It's really important for people to fill the census out, given that money for hospitals and schools and roads are going to be based on census numbers. The, the way that Congress allocates districts for the House of Representatives based on census numbers, the way that states do redistricting is going to be based on census numbers for the next 10 years. But it's really important that people self-respond in this moment, given that organizers are unable and tr- local trusted leaders are unable to get these messages out and do organizing on the ground. But also through all of this, we are fighting disinformation. These problems are not kind of creations of COVID. Um, A lot of us have been working really hard to have Facebook, Twitter, Google um, accountable for a way in which disinformation spreads and can spread virally. And in this moment, I think there there are politicians and other folks that are trying to use COVID to spread fear and misinformation and to keep people from voting. They're going to keep, try to keep people from participating in the census. They're going to try to spread myths about COVID and conspiracy theories that are not helpful to protecting people's health. So the fight against disinformation is really, um, remains really, really important in this moment. Um, so there's a lot of other issues or educational equity issues because, you know, while my kids go to a public school. They have an iPad that has been provided to them for remote learning. But we know in a lot of school districts, they are resource starved and it's kids of color that are suffering the most. And so what's the equity to make sure that all kids have access to whatever remote learning they can um, in this moment? So there are those issues that get of economic security issues are really profound that we're working on right now and to Make sure, like, when when people come out of their homes at 7 p.m. to cheer healthcare workers and show appreciation for everyone on the front lines that are continuing, the essential workers who we treat largely as non-essential for the safety net protections, like, we need, we haven't been able to get $50 minimum wage for them. And so, it's like, how long will this memory of appreciation last for folks that are literally putting their lives on the line? Are we going to reach for Band-Aid solutions? Are there going to be structural solutions that get put in place at this moment that will outlive COVID and will better secure the kind of safety and protections for communities? So 
these are some of the major major issues that we are confronting right now. And COVID, in many ways, has just highlighted the broader inequalities and inequities that we deal with. But the question will be, can we reach in this moment for more transformative structural solutions that will last long after COVID leaves and we are able to, to kind of have a vaccine and the like? And that's really an open question right now. Now, I also saw, and you would know this better than I do, but I saw that Attorney General Barr threatened legal action against uh, the states for, quote, keeping people under house arrest. What does that even mean? Is that a real thing or is this like a PR thing? So I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what the theory would be uh, that he would be able to do that. I did see that. Uh, You know, you also probably saw that in the initial weeks when everyone was staying at home and stay-at-home orders were coming out, that Barr also tried to obtain emergency authority to detain people indefinitely. And it was met with fairly strong bipartisan uh, rebuke. Like Senator Michael Lee was like, not on my watch and along with others. And then Barr tried to backtrack. And I didn't know that, Vanita. Can you explain? I didn't see this emergency thing. Yeah, so he... Um, he did an interview and the reporter transcribed what he said and that he had asked Graham, Lindsey Graham, um, head of the Judiciary Judicial Committee, to give him emergency authority powers to be able to detain people indefinitely, um, among some other powers. And so it created this national, got into the national news. Many of us, you know, roundly condemned this as a power grab, very dangerous, again, another sign of kind of authoritarian um, leanings of the administration. And thankfully, there were some important voices, Republican senators, that said, not on my watch, no way. And um, so it was met with bipartisan rebuke. And then a couple of days later, Barr tried to backtrack uh, that and said, you know, my words were misconstrued and all of this stuff. And so he kind of backed down. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff when people say, oh, you all are exaggerating when you talk about, you know, the, that we're kind of becoming a more and more authoritarian state. That's the boiling of the frog. It's when, you know, there are these efforts to uh, use COVID to push agendas or powers that frankly, are undemocratic in this moment that we have to be really vigilant about uh, to protect civil rights, to protect vulnerable communities, to protect, you know, basic democratic norms, the elections, the making sure that officials aren't doing power grabs literally um, is part of the challenge right now. One of the things that has continued to happen, and this is an issue due to both of us because this is how we met, is the police have used COVID in some places as a way to continue race-based policing in ways that just exacerbate bias. So we see in places like New York or other places where people are getting arrested because they have a mask on in a store or because they are, quote, violating social distancing rules. What do we, how do we manage sort of the policing apparatus in a moment like this that is a crisis? I think there's a lot of need for local community activists to make sure that they are raising this as a really serious issue with the local police departments. Um, there are national associations that are talking about this too, but I, I am glad that the media is actually beginning to cover these issues. I think they need to cover them more and that organizations need to be able to provide support about making sure that law enforcement and communities are really educated about the dangers that can happen in this moment when we're all being told to wear masks, but for some, that carries its own unique risk. And that's terrifying. This is an area where there's more work to be done. Now, I just saw that Tom Perez said that the convention is going to be on as of now in August. So you already said that the election's not going to change. Trump doesn't have the ability to change the date of the election. Can you just help me understand how we get to that if, like, states are postponing primaries and and it seems like states are delaying things? How do you not have a delayed election if the states keep pushing things back? Well, the November election cannot be moved. As I said, it can only be moved by an act of Congress. And right now, the whole push is to have states be ready to have elections amid covid the primaries kind of were a place to have forced preparation. And so that is what everyone is gearing towards. And Republicans 
Democratic Secretaries of State have publicly stated that they are using this time now to, to prepare for the November election and to put those options in place. I will say on the convention side, epidemiologists are telling us more and more that the kind of lifespan of COVID-19 could be 12 to 18 months until there's a vaccine and that there will be other peaks. And that in all likelihood, while there may be an easing of stay-at-home orders and perhaps of some forms of social distancing, you know, I just did a, an interview with Dr. Zeke Emanuel and, and some other public health professionals who said that they don't see any kind of conventions, concerts, conferences, large gatherings of people actually taking place until the middle of 2021. So I am going to be surprised if... There are political conventions this summer. Um, maybe it's possible. My sense is that they'll have to look really different than what they typically do if they happen physically. And the elections, that's not moving. And it's incumbent on states to be prepared. And secretaries of state take a lot of pride in running um, smooth elections. Where kind of, that's their job. It's their number one job to do. And so right now... While there are other political shenanigans being, you know, um, attempted, and we're going to have to confront those along the way, the push really is to to be able to have the options in place that are good options that don't result in disenfranchisement and allow every eligible voter to cast their vote and have it be counted in November. Cool. Thanks, Vanita. Thank you, Dre. Take care. Thanks for having me on the show. Well. That's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aww. i mean just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home.